0: Okay, well thank you for, uh, for being present today at 5.40 in the afternoon. Um, I'd like to, in terms of, let me get through the learning objectives here. So what I'm going to talk about in this presentation is primarily neurogenic thoracic gallant syndrome. I'll touch on the other forms, you know, the vascular forms, but but since the neurogenic is, Uh, Much more common. I'm going to focus on neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome. I'd like you to be able to identify the most common forms of thoracic outlet syndrome, um, and then two to recognize what some of the histologic findings have demonstrated with respect to the anterior and middle scalene muscles, in the sense that they may be a causative factor in the genesis of NTOS, and then thirdly. Describe and understand really the value of chemodenervation, that is, the use of botulinum toxin to the anterior scalene muscle primarily, but perhaps the middle scalene muscle as well—for uh, the alleviation of symptoms related to this disease. Well, you know, there's no question that chronic pain is an epidemic in this country. We've heard a lot about the. Uh, reverse of that, which would be opioid use disorder, opioid epidemic, opioid overdose. But chronic pain certainly remains untreated, undertreated, and has become a significant public health problem. Um, there are about 116 million Americans suffering from chronic pain. Worldwide, it's even more than that. It's something like $1.5 billion. The costs are extreme, and we've learned over time through science that pain really is a disease in and of itself, and not just a function necessarily of other syndromes or diseases. Sexual sensitization is a process that occurs in patients with. Hang on one second. I think this is out of order slightly here, but let me let me start with this first. Um, this is a case of true NTOS, right? I mean, this is rare. I don't think I've ever seen this in my practice. I think one of the neuro, a couple of the neurosurgeons that I work with have seen it, but this represents really true neurogenic thoracic thoracodiggit syndrome. You can see the patient's left hand, how there's uh, you know, atrophy of the phenar, hypothenar eminences, the intrinsic muscles of the hand. This patient did not present with pain, uh, really, or many uh, sensory symptoms at all. Uh, it, in contrast to most of the patients that I see, that you perhaps see too, with this syndrome, um, the disputed form, if you will, of neurogenic thoracic syndrome. <clears throat> When we talk about the thoracic outlet, you know, uh, we're talking about different areas in the neck, essentially. Uh, the, we're talking about the scalene muscles, the anterior middle scalene muscles. We're talking about the brachial plexus that lies in between them, and we're talking about, uh, you know, thoracic outlet syndrome in general can relate to vascular TOS that would involve the subclavian artery or the subclavian vein. <clears throat> Here's another depiction of that. Um, In the scalene triangle, the anterior scalene muscle, the brachial plexus that's sandwiched in between the anterior scalene muscle, and the middle scalene muscle. Uh, You can see the long thoracic nerve there, which can sometimes get damaged uh, when surgery is performed, the scalenectomy or rib resection, mainly the scalenectomy. Uh, And you see that the subclavian artery lies then posterior to the anterior scalene muscle and the subclavian vein these structures you know the brachial plexus the subclavian artery for example the vein then traverse on top of the first rib and underneath the clavicle the as an overview of this particular syndrome i mean the thought is that this is a compressive anomaly but the reality is that we really don't know yet what the etiology of thoracic outlet syndrome is that is the neurogenic form. But we think that there's some type of compression of the brachial plexus, sometimes the blood vessels as well. Almost, you know, 95-98% of what we see is neurogenic versus vascular. There's some type of inadequate passageway then between the base of the neck and the armpit, maybe due to scalene hypertrophy, the anterior scalene or the middle scalene muscles, Uh, maybe fibrosis, maybe a cervical rib, although that's pretty rare too. We do know that patients who are involved in repetitive activities, like assembly line workers who do perhaps a lot of keyboard typing, which is a lot of people today, may be at risk for developing the neurogenic form of TOS. Neck injury, and I see a lot of the patients that I see have been involved in some type of an accident, perhaps a motor vehicle accident. They've sustained a whiplash injury, for example, and have developed the syndrome. Certain uh, people that are involved in sports, swimmers, Uh, volleyball players, baseball pitchers, there have been case reports of baseball pitchers, uh, even violinists as well, who develop NTOS uh, from the position of their arm, ergonomic position of their arm, and these are activities that involve a lot of overhead movements of the arm. Patients will say that they have numbness, they'll feel numbness down the arm, tingling perhaps in the fingers, neck pain, shoulder pain, of muscle spasms, certainly in the trapezius, headaches, and upper extremity weakness. A lot of those descriptors are used by patients who have NTOS. Other sites of compression are listed here. So one is the scalene triangle. The other would be the costoclavicular space, so that space between the clavicle and the first rib. And then more inferior to that would be the pectoralis minor space. That would be the space that's... Um, beneath the pectoralis minor muscle and then above the ribs. So there are three distinct areas of potential compression if you will or let's say pathology. I want to go back for one second here to this slide that I think is out of order but I want to illustrate because I think it's important in the sense that over time I think patients with NTOS can develop central sensitization and you know that's the process of pain amplification that occurs at the spinal cord level due to neural injury or due to chronic pain conditions and this is a depiction of that on the left you can see like the uh, primary afferent nerve the A delta or C fiber coming into the dorsal horn of the spinal cord and if you look on the right that's sort of an amplified view of that area You can see the C-afferent terminal. That would be reflective of like an A-delta or C-fiber. In this case, it's a C-fiber. And then beyond that, you can see the spinal cord. And what it depicts is that you you have this overactivity then of the C-afferent terminals, releasing glutamate, releasing substance P to specific receptors in the cord that then from there triggers protein kinases and ultimately triggers gene transcription and the perpetuation of chronic pain. So I think I'm going to refer to this later. I wanted you to have a, have a glimpse of this in advance, because I think this can occur in patients who have untreated chronic, if you will, neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome. Here's another slide. This is just an overview, too, of potential compression sites or sites of pathology, the scalene triangle, the costoclavicular space. I would say that you know over the years that I've treated this syndrome, most of the time, I think the The symptoms emanate from the scalene triangle, maybe from the pectoralis minor as well, that space, too. I really haven't seen as much um, pathology, if you will, from the costoclavicular space. Well, you know, there may be a a congenital predisposition to developing NTOS, such that an injury, say whiplash injury, for example, then compromises the outlet. That narrowed space affects the scalene muscles, the brachial plexus, uh, the nerves that are within or around the brachial plexus as well, as well as the stellate ganglion. This really is a controversial diagnosis. It's complex, it's one of the most, I would say, complex and misunderstood uh, in medicine. And to be honest, the reason is that there, we don't know the pathophysiology yet, and we don't have uniform diagnostic criteria. But there have been studies that have told us And it indicated that if NTOS remains untreated, quality of life is significantly impaired, comparable to those with chronic heart failure. And that's pretty significant. Three forms exist, the neurogenic form slash the disputed form. I think, you know, moving forward during the presentation, I just like to call this neurogenic versus disputed, and this and that gets confusing. Uh, But let me just call it the neurogenic form. And there's arterial and venous. The true, think of that picture that I showed you earlier in the presentation of true NTOS. That's what it looks like. But it's rare, 1% of cases. The The common form of NTOS represents a lot of cases. You know, and the thing is, the symptoms seem to be suggestive of some type of brachial plexus compromise or injury of some sort. But there really aren't many, if at all, objective findings, which makes The diagnosis difficult, the recognition difficult, and then the treatment difficult, too. But as I said before, there may be a space problem there. And, you know, if you have some type of congenital anomaly with superimposed injury, that can lead to muscle spasm of the anterior scalene muscle, or the middle scalene muscle, perhaps, or both. Or fibrosis, fibrosis of the muscle. Fibrosis that surrounds fibrotic tissue that surrounds the brachial plexus that could lead to these symptoms. Certainly some patients do have cervical rib fibrous bands that surgeons detect when they operate, but that's sort of rare too, frankly. Hyperextension flexion injuries. So if you see patients, you know that you that have shoulder pain, neck pain, shoulder pain, pain that radiates down the arm, numbness down the arm, tingling, ask them if they've had any type of injuries to the neck whiplash, for example, repetitive stress injuries. Interestingly, there have been histologic studies on the anterior middle scalene muscles, and what they've detected is that there's fibrosis that exists in the muscle. There's also a lot of scar tissue, three times the scar tissue in these muscles versus controls. So it may be that there's compromise of the outlet from, perhaps, fibrosis there. It may be that the muscle spasms, or the muscle might not spasm. Rather, instead of muscle spasm, there may be fibrosis along the muscle or around the brachial plexus leading to these symptoms. This is a picture of just how many anomalous ribs can exist in patients. Uh, This really causes more arterial uh, thoracic outlet syndrome versus neurogenic but I wanted to give you a sense for you know what the f- normal first rib looks like for example and what a cervical rib looks like when it attaches to the transverse process of C7 and then from there attaches to um, the first rib or even the second rib uh, you got sometimes then for example a cervical rib that compresses the space the interscalene triangle and pushes that subclavian artery against the anterior scalene muscle and leads to postnodal dilatation and symptoms. Well, if we look at this syndrome and this the anterior scalene muscle, I mean a lot of studies have been on the anterior scalene muscle and frankly you know, the surgeons, the vascular surgeons, the surgeons that perform the scalenectomy or the rib resection, for example, but specifically the, the scalenectomy remove or cut part of the anterior scalene muscle. So, you know, th- what's the point, what's the purpose, I guess, of the anterior scalene muscle? Well, it, it, it emanates from C3 to C6 vertebral bodies, or, spinous, or the transverse processes, and it attaches to the first rib. It's just an accessory muscle of respiration. And it bends and rotates the neck slightly. If you know, but spasm of the muscle or can put traction then on the brachial plexus and cause not only muscular edema but neural edema, maybe both, and limits the outlet and induces the symptoms. I've talked about scar development as well, fibrosis that could worsen um, neural compromise and lead to symptoms. So you know, I and others have targeted the anterior scalene muscle to help reduce potential spasm or tension there, uh, interrupt the events that lead to or are causing NTOS symptoms. Patients typically present, well, first of all, this affects women more than men, unfortunately, three to four times more frequent in women. The incidence is somewhere between, say, 0.3 to 8%. As I mentioned before, certain musicians, data entry personnel, assembly line workers, I've seen many of those, seem to be especially vulnerable. Certain athletes as well that participate in a lot of overhead movements. History of neck trauma perhaps or trauma to the shoulder may also predispose patients to NTOS. Clinically, a lot of patients, you know, traditionally the thought, of, you know, if you read about this syndrome, patients Will present to you with shoulder pain that radiates medially down the arm, forearm, into the pinky finger and the ring finger. In practice, I don't really see that. I mean, I, I see patients usually present with pain that may be in the shoulder, it may be in the anterior chest, it may be also in the neck, and they'll describe pain or paresthesias or numbness down the entire arm, You know, not necessarily dermatomal at all, into certain fingers or even all the fingers. That's what I see more likely than you know, the traditional description of NTOS. But as I said, the neck can be involved, drapezius is often involved, and patients can also report headaches from NTOS. Perhaps some of these are from compression, if you will, or disease of the upper plexus C5 to C7 versus C8 T1. You can see neurogenic and vascular symptoms from the sympathetic nervous system activation around from the C8 to T1 area and fibers. The examination varies, but I feel like often you know I'll examine the scalene muscles, the anterior scalene muscle, the trapezius. Uh, I'll look for a Tinel sign over the brachial plexus, a supraclavicularly. Um, Some patients report, and you'll on exam notice, that they have reduced sensation to light touch in their fingers and the provocative maneuvers can be positive or not. You know, this is a diagnosis of exclusion, so the differential here is somewhat broad. I'd say that, you know, often the entire arm, as I mentioned, is involved without dermatomal preference. The clinical presentation could be nonspecific. And it's important to distinguish, though, between patients who may have cervical radicular pain or cervical radiculopathy from disc disease, from disc herniation, from, say, cervical stenosis, uh, or those who have carpal tunnel syndrome or cubital tunnel syndrome, because it can lead to pain in the forearm or numbness, paresthesias in the forearm and in the fingers. So the diagnosis is still history and physical exam. A lot of ancillary testing is performed to rule out other conditions, but many of them lack sensitivity and specificity. A lot of provocative testing is done. I mean, the, some of the neurosurgeons, the vascular surgeons perform the Adson maneuver, Ruse, Wright, but in reality, they really have unknown reliability and low specificity. But I wanted to talk about some of these provocative maneuvers uh, that are done. Nerve tension tests are often done. I mean, I do them too, so I'll, you know, I'll tap on the supraclavicular area to see if it reproduces any symptoms in their neck or down their arms. I do use that elevated arm stress test a lot, you know, abduction, external rotation of the arm, and then have patients open and close their fingers to determine if it reproduces their pain. Again, you know, not that sensitive, but some reports indicate that it may be uh, the most reliable of the provocative maneuvers. Other tests are used, you know, sometimes some practitioners use Sperling test, Uh, as I mentioned, the Adson maneuver as well, sometimes Wright. What about testing? What about EMG nerve conduction testing? And these are routinely done on patients with NTOS. Uh, It's often normal, though. I mean, often normal. But, you know, sometimes it does detect the presence of medial neuropathy, right? Or uh, carpal tunnel syndrome, cubital tunnel syndrome, polyneuropathies. It's important to rule those conditions out as a source of the patient's symptoms. I often find that chest x-rays are routinely done in these patients as well. They're done to rule out a cervical rib. MRI, let's talk about MRI for a second, because you know I think that the MRI of the neck uh, or if or perhaps the brachial if we use brachial plexus neurography, those are two potentially important tests. Um, MRI is done of the neck to rule out some of these conditions that can mimic NTOS, like disc disease, right? Cervical stenosis, neuroforaminal stenosis, um, and then disc herniation. But uh, one of the neurosurgeons that I work with routinely orders these three Tesla brachial plexus neurograms. And, you know, that actually can show you the cervical spine, which is helpful, uh, but it also identifies pathology, structural damage, if you will, or structural injury, anomalies to the brachial plexus. And uh, I think that he feels like it provides him with the Most useful data with respect to what might be happening to the brachial plexus. Part of it may be that there have been a couple of studies uh, that have shown these morphological correlates of TOS on MR neurography that were later confirmed by surgical exploration. Interestingly, 7 out of 30 patients isn't that many, but, you know, those, the, and what, those morphological correlates were fibrotic bands, fibrosis, actually, you know, around the brachial plexus. The medial antibrachial cutaneous nerve condition study. Well, you know, one of the vascular surgeons that I work with sometimes orders this. You know, it may be able to detect milder cases of NTOS. It measures the sensory function of the lower trunk of the brachial plexus, C8 and T1, specifically T1. And, you know, it may be abnormal and show uh, areas of pathology in normal EMG nerve conduction tests. But I don't think we can use it yet. It needs more validation studies before we can say, hey, this is the test that we think can help diagnose this condition. Not there yet. I wanted to show you the continuous innervation of the upper extremity. Maybe a little hard to see. I hope not. But... um, you know, the, actually here it shows the, the distribution of the medial antibrachial cutaneous nerve. What's, I wanted to show you this because if you think back to that picture that I showed you earlier of central sensitization, what happens in my experience uh, with patients with NTOS that remain untreated or have had it for several years is central sensitization. So they may present initially with symptoms that are more localized or say focal down the medial aspect of the arm or the lateral aspect of the arm, but over time, the distribution of their pain expands throughout the arm and the forearm, and I think that's because what we're seeing is that process of central sensitization. The if we look at the anterior scalene muscle, you know, uh, I use this, and I'm asked to do this anterior scalene injection with local anesthetic as a perhaps a supportive test. It's not diagnostic of NTOS, but I think it. It can help support the diagnosis of NTOS. And interestingly, you know, by the way, the Society for Vascular Surgery has, even though I said before there are no, I don't think, university accepted criteria for diagnosing NTOS, the Society for Vascular Surgery has four criteria that they use. And they say that three of the four have to be met in order to um, make the diagnosis of NTOS. One of those is a positive response to a scalene block. It's thought that if you inject local anesthetic into the muscle, that it relaxes the muscle, it reduces spasm. It certainly allows the first rib to descend, and it can decrease the pressure inside the thoracic outlet. This is something that um, some of the neuros... Well, more of the vascular surgeons, I think, use to help them decide whether they're going to perform surgery because there was a study that was done several years ago that indicated that a positive response to this block correlated well with good surgical outcomes. This block, this injection, if you will, was first described many, many years ago, back in 1939. Believe it or not, it was done using anatomic landmarks. Today, uh, some still use anatomic landmarks, others use EMG, ultrasound, CT guidance, for example. Um, you know, I use some ultrasound and then mainly CT. We did some work on the use of CT for this particular block I found that it seemed to minimize some of the Possible side effects, if you will, or complications related to the injection of the anterior scalene muscle—that is, reduced reduction to Horner's syndrome, uh, dysphonia, brachial plexus blocks, and dysphagia. This is what it looks like under CT. There's a transverse view of the CT around um, C6 of the neck. So it's a CT of the neck around C6. You can see the trachea there. You can see the carotid artery, the sternocleidomastoid muscle, and then you can see the anterior scalene muscle. Um, and then you can see the medial and posterior scalene muscle complex there. So often they're more distinguished, distinguishable than that. But the nerves, the brachial plexus, lies in between the anterior and middle scalene muscles. So we can't obviously see the nerves on CT, but you can certainly see the vasculature quite well, the muscles and the bones. And this is what it looks like initially. And then after a little contrast is injected, you can see, like, point. I don't know, 2 cc's or so, maybe 0.3 cc's of radiographic contrast is injected into the anterior scalene muscle, and followed by local anesthetic, maybe just a half a, I, I use like maybe a half a cc of, of bupivacaine. You can use lidocaine as well. The... You know, a lot of patients before they undergo surgery, certainly, and then even before they undergo any type of injection into the neck, undergo conservative treatments. And what are they? Well, a lot of it's physical therapy, trying to correct posture, uh, improve their ergonomics in the workplace, nerve glides. Uh, And so they all focus on decompressing the brachial plexus, helping to restore balance to the neck. And, And in certain circumstances, it can be very effective. Some patients that have the chronic form have used CBT, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, to help minimize the impact of pain on their lives and minimize catastrophizing because that can occur and occurs not too infrequently in patients who have chronic pain. If you look at physical therapy, some of the data support the use of things that are quite easy: heat packs, exercise programs, cervical traction. Uh, in the past, you know, when it was easier to do inpatient rehab inpatient rehab followed by home exercise program had a high, high percent satisfaction rate among patients with NTOS. There's been significant pain decrease in treatment satisfaction with partial correction and shoulder girdle strengthening uh, when these exercises are performed quite, for quite some time, I mean 14 months or so. It's quite some time to do it. But a high percentage of patients may be treated quite well and managed non-operatively if you perform physical therapy for at least eight weeks or so. I don't see those patients, obviously, but but a fair number can do well without surgical intervention. What about medications? Well, you know, we have limited data on which medications are the most useful for this particular syndrome. What's used are muscle relaxants, as you might imagine. Tizanity might be something that you could think about using over some of the others because it has the additional alpha-2 agonist capability. Uh, certainly, NSAIDs, trigger point injections, often into the trapezius. The trapezius often spasms, and uh, due to ergonomic abnormalities in these patients, and, and can be helpful. Again, you know some of the tricyclic antidepressants, SNRIs can be used, membrane stabilizers used as well, and certainly opioid therapy. Maybe you know low dose opioid therapy, short acting opioids if necessary, long acting opioids if everything else is ineffective. I show the trapezius muscle here. It's quite a big muscle. It spans from C1 all the way down to T12. A lot of patients with NTOS, in my experience, will complain of pain above the spine of the scapula. It's tense. It's tight. They feel like it leads to headaches. So if you can identify certain points in the trapezius muscle that are tender, uh, trigger point injections with local anesthetic or even perhaps dry needling into that muscle can be helpful. Let's talk about the use of botulinum toxin, because I think this is an interesting, intriguing way to help treat the symptoms of uh, NTOS. Uh, I do it often under CT imaging and block the, you know, inject Botox into the anterior scalene muscle. Low dose, maybe 30 units, um, 25 units sometimes. But we know that Botox uh, not only reduces muscle overactivity, but could also reduce pain and inflammation via a different mechanism of action. It's certainly approved for many uses right, by the FDA in terms of hemifacial spasm, uh, hyperhidrosis, blepharospasm, chronic migraine. And it, it's quite safe. And because of its safety prof- profile, it's been expanded to lots of different off-label uses, including NTOS, but other things like piriformis syndrome uh, or even you know, lumbosacral myofascial pain. The Botox you know, prevents the release of acetylcholine, it weakens the muscle for some time between three to four months. It also, as I said before, could decrease pain and inflammation because it seems to inhibit the release of certain neuropeptides, like substance P and glutamate, interestingly. And we know those are involved in pain transmission and central sensitization. Think back of that picture that I showed you of central sensitization. So, you know, in my experience in using Botox for this syndrome, Sometimes I'm not sure whether it's really reducing muscle spasm or whether muscle spasm actually exists, but when patients do get relief, it may be because it's actually inhibiting the release of substance P and glutamate. In animal studies, Botox is shown to improve wound healing in injured muscles and to reduce scarring. And remember, scarring may be one of the factors here that leads to pain as well as an injury to the muscle. And in human studies, there have been benefits of Botox, botulinum toxin, um, in muscles that are affected by radiation fibrosis syndrome. So again, I wonder if Botox is able to reduce the effects of fibrosis or fibrotic tissue. The, I was involved in a study a certain number of years ago using you know, uh, botulinum toxin to the anterior scalene muscle under CT guidance. And you know, what we found in that study was a prospective study, not a whole number of patients, but we did find that there was a significant decrease in pain at one and two months. And even at three months, patients reported a decrease in sensory symptoms and a decrease in their VAS scores. Interestingly... Um, pain scores did not return to their pre-intervention levels even at three months after the use of Botox. And when I ask patients today whether, you know, after, say, three months or four months, does the pain return to baseline, certainly patients will say, yeah, you know, it has come back to where it was before. Others will say, no, not really. It's still bad, but it's not quite as bad or intense as it was before. Uh, The benefits, there are different imaging modalities for You know, the introduction of say Botox into the scalene muscle, either the anterior or the middle scalene muscle. Uh, Some of the benefits of CT, although there is radiation involved, it's brief, it's a brief scan, and it's easy to visualize the structures. It's fast, it's accurate. um, And if you use CT fluoro, if you have access to that, you have real time imaging. And it's not as obscured by, you know, patients who may be overweight or by adjacent osseous structures which can occur if you use ultrasound interestingly you know some of the data indicate that a higher percentage of the anesthetic injections result in positive blocks if you use CT guidance. The exposure of the CT time is pretty brief I mean maybe 25 seconds take a quick picture and then it's under CT fluoro it's pretty fast and efficient I think it really exceeds a minute but other modalities are used and I wanted to list this, those here as well in terms of using Botox uh, into the anterior scalene muscle, the middle scaly muscle, perhaps other muscles as well, using fluoroscopy and EMG, um, ultrasound and EMG. I mean, they're all different methods of imaging that can provide overall pretty good results. They vary in terms of the length of time that patients get relief and the intensity of relief. In terms of A high-quality study that's been done on the use of Botox for NTOS. There was one done in 2011 in Canada. It was a randomized controlled trial, double-blind, using EMG guidance to the anterior scalene and middle scalene muscles. They used about 37 and a half units of Botox into each muscle and unfortunately they didn't really note any significant improvement in pain. Uh, This was a six-month follow-up and There were, though, several limitations to this study which might have led to uh, the negative outcome. That is, most of these patients had pain for quite some time, for six years. I mean, we know that chronic pain and chronic pain central sensitization can develop, and in those patients, it's difficult to treat. So there were patients in this study, many of whom had pain for a long period of time. Some had very low levels of pain, and therefore, any difference... Achieved by the Botox was going to be difficult to detect, and there were some suboptimal, less than optimal uh, blinding methods that led to unblinding and allocation biases in this study. I just want to mention that because I have to say that you know there the prospective studies, the observational studies, lower quality, but but in and also in clinically, in my experience, there is an effect that patients get from Botox, no question about it, and I think that it can be durable. I provided this as this an overview. It's not to, for you to look at right now. It's probably difficult to see, but just I sort of tried to summarize the data that we have on the cause of NTOS, the clinical presentation, diagnostic measures, therapies that are used, and surgical interventions that are used for this. Surgical interventions, I'll mention in a second, typically uh, are related to removing the scalene, the anterior scalenectomy or the rib resection, or both anterior scalene muscle resection uh, and the rib resection. Well, I think that with respect to using botulinum toxin, botulinum toxin A, in general, if you look at the studies on it, pain relief lasts for about three months. What's nice about it, what's nice about using Botox, perhaps other therapies, I mean, I think one of the interventional radiologist that I work with uses sometimes he's using steroids even into the muscle hyaluronic acid in the muscle not not proven yet but I think with Botox you know these this can help patients avoid surgery I mean some patients don't want surgery and this is a significant surgery to undergo frankly Uh, so I think it's helpful if Uh, in avoiding certainly any surgical complications and time off work. Some surgeons require physical therapy for eight weeks following surgery, uh, maybe a couple months off of work, no lifting 10 pounds for several months. I mean, these things are not easy uh, for patients who are in the working world. So it's nice to have an alternative. So I think the value of using Botox into this muscle is uh, for patients who are non-surgical candidates, for sure, as a bridge to surgery, if patients want to wait, not ready to do it yet, and perhaps as a trial before surgery. This is a depiction. I haven't seen it of what that how patients are positioned during surgery. The transaxillary approach to the rib resection and anterior scalenectomy, at least at my institution. There are different approaches, and you know there are a lack of data on comparing these approaches. If you look at a Cochrane review. On the surgery, you know, there's low-quality evidence that, for example, that transaxillary rib resection reduces pain any better than the supraclavicular scalenectomy does. And there's really no randomized evidence that either is better than no treatment at all. So keep that in mind. There are reports in, in the literature of high success rates um, and low complication rates with surgery, 90%, you know, I've read. Yet there are some studies in the past, longitudinal studies, that have said that there's a 60% recurrence rate the first year after surgery, an 80% recurrence rate within the second year, which is quite high. Also, in the literature, reports of disability in 60% of patients one year after surgery and complication rates that are even higher than 30%. So, you know, I think these are important to keep in mind if you have patients that are considering surgery and to make sure that they have the surgery at a place that does them frequently, that has a high volume, to avoid some of these complications. Because, I mean, I've seen patients, too, that have the surgery, whichever surgery that is, it may be both the rib resection, the scillonectomy, or one or the other, and, you know, they'll have recurrent pain or the pain changed. You know, it was just say, for example, down the arm, but now they feel in the anterior chest wall and the neck. We don't know why that is, but I think it's helpful to have some idea of surgical outcomes and what might be an alternative to surgery. On the horizon, though, what's interesting and, and hopeful is that there's endoscopic transaxillary first rib resections that are being done, mainly for the, arterio- the vascular form of TOS, and robotic first rib resections for both vascular TOS and neurogenic TOS. And and so these minimally invasive surgical approaches hopefully will, will basically reduce the complication rates and improve outcomes related to surgery. So I think to conclude, certainly the neurogenic form of TOS is the most common. It's overlooked, it's I think likely not diagnosed because we don't have a lot of objective findings or frankly any for that matter, which makes it difficult. But we do know that pain can persist in these patients, impair function, and cause emotional distress. And as I mentioned before, you know, if untreated, quality of life can be significantly impaired, like chronic heart failure. Uh, in my institution, we are trying to develop work with we're trying to work with some of the biomedical engineers to develop a means of analyzing what happens structurally to the brachial plexus when patients, you know, abduct the arm. A lot of times patients with NTOS will say that, gosh, you know, if they abduct the arm or externally rotate it, it induces the symptoms. Same thing with overhead movement. So what we're trying to come up with is a way to classify, well, no, not classify, I guess, determine the pathophysiology. That's what we're really trying to do, because we don't know it. And it would be really helpful to figure out what's going on, especially sort of a dynamics, biomedical, biomechanical study in patients who have this syndrome and those who don't. So that's underway. We're not quite there yet, but I think and I'm hoping that if we can determine what the pathophysiology is of NTS, then we can develop better methods of treatment. And I think that we do have some emerging evidence that Molecules like botulinum toxin to the anterior scalene muscle, perhaps middle scalene muscle, even to other muscles like the pectoralis minor muscle can be effective in reducing symptoms and improve quality of life in patients who have NTOS. Well, thank you very much. Yes, question. Topical lidocaine over the brachial plexus? You know, I haven't, but I have to say, too, that I haven't really tried it. It sounds like you have for, for NTOS symptoms. No, I not uh, Yeah. It varies a lot. Yes, it does vary. I mean, I would feel like the topical lidocaine wouldn't be able to... Basically, I that I couldn't get the topical lidocaine deep enough, you know, over the plexus or over the muscle. But you know, but I haven't tried it. I haven't read anything about it either in in the literature yet. Yes.
1: So when um, when you do the uh, the Botox injection. Do you do the anterior, the middle, or the pec? Or, do you, or does it depend on the patient? I, when I've looked at the literature, I've never been quite clear which approach to take for which patient. I know.
0: It's difficult. I really just focus on the anterior scalene muscle. So I'll inject local anesthetic there or I'll inject the Botox there. But that being said, I have, ing- you know, sometimes it's ineffective. And, and then I feel like, well, you know, we know perhaps from some of the data that the middle scalene muscle may be involved. So I've targeted that muscle at times as well. Sometimes the vascular surgeon feels like, the pathology is around the pectoralis minor muscle. The patient presents with a lot of anterior chest wall pain and then pain down the arm or paresthesias down the arm versus sort of the neck um, or the occiput. So we've targeted the pectoralis minor muscle with local anesthetic and even Botox as well, uh, which is shown to be effective. I haven't published anything on that. You know, My end is very small. I don't, I don't see a lot of those patients, but, but I've targeted that muscle too. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: I, I'm i a surgeon who used to perform uh, first rib sections. Yeah. I, I think one of the uh, things that defeats the surgery is the fact that when you operate, uh, you create scar. Mm-hmm. And no matter where you operate, whether it's in the spinal cord or in the belly, you create scar. Uh, maybe the... Um, Use of minimally invasive procedures will create less scar. The other point is that if you do a uh, Scaling if you cut the anterior scaling muscle for a cat one problem uh, with definitive findings both historical and physical examination findings uh, that you need to take out the first rib mm-hmm. the reason being if the, if the first rib is left in, then the CAT1 will adhere to the first rib, and you'll have a recurrence.
0: Hmm. I see. Uh, I have a question for you, actually, because you've operated on many of these patients. When do you advise patients to have surgery? Because, you know, I'll see some patients before they have surgery, or I'll see them sometimes you know, after they have surgery. And I feel like a lot of patients really don't understand when they should have surgery and how effective it'll be you know because the surgeons often will say you know they'll cite like at my institution they're citing you know high percent success rate from their transaxillary rib resection and scalenectomy and i feel like that's not true across the country so you know it's difficult for patients to tease out whether they should have the surgery i think
1: i think you you could classify patients who have symptoms and findings of TOS. Into several groups. One, those that have stretch injuries, and these are very difficult sort of things. Uh, short of uh, vulsing part of the brachial plexus, uh, which is uh, you can't uh, you can't really help those patients very much. No. The second group that is difficult is those who've had long-standing work on assembly lines. Where they've had repetitive strain injury. Mm -hmm. And there they have not only problems with their brachial, with the restriction of the brachial plexus, but they have problems with their uh, levator scapular, with their trapezius muscle. Their shoulders are down. Uh, They have spasm in their uh, trapezius muscle. And these are difficult uh, cases that uh, you don't really gain very much by operating on. Um uh, then it's the ones that have positive findings on physical examination. Now I use uh, trick I use uh, sign. I use the East maneuver. The Adson maneuver was discussed by and uh, put into the literature by Dr. Adson in nineteen twenty eight and he said, this is good for vascular thoracic allicinol. Yeah, right. So we should really eliminate the Atsin maneuver. Now, you can have both. You can have a, both compression of the subclavian artery and restriction of the movement of the brachial plexus. But the Atsin maneuver is more for vascular. Right.
0: Okay. Great. Thanks. Anyone else? Okay, thank you.